You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. I'm going to be in Psalm 68. So go to Psalm 68. I'm going to get there in a second. You can go to Psalm 68. That's where I'm going to be. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to read from there in a second. Some of you are going to roll your eyes at me as I begin this because I've used this illustration, I think, bef- I think I've used this before. For some of you, I've used this many times because I was so profoundly struck by it and it's Father's Day and I, had to, I have to use it for Father's Day. I don't care how many times I've used it before. It, it, I have to use it for Father's Day. So I apologize. Some of you are going to roll your eyes at me, but that's fine. You're going to get, get over that as well, okay? Uh, several months ago, we as uh, guys in the church, we went to a theater, which I did, never go to theater, not just because I'm a Christian and we don't go to the theater, but um, just because we, Nikki and I haven't been to the, I don't know the last time we went to the theater uh, to see a, a movie. But the guys went, I was invited, so I'm like, hey, why not? Let's go see and I went and we were seeing the second Avatar movie, The Way of Water. And I went into it thinking, man, it's a, it's a movie about a bunch of giant blue people. And I'm not going to like this movie. But I liked the movie by the end of it. I actually really enjoyed the movie. If you've never seen Avatar, The Way of Water, I, I really enjoyed it. I went in with a bad attitude. And hopefully maybe you came into church with a bad attitude and it's just going to change your mind. But I was, my mind was changed by the end of Avatar, The Way of Water. I mean, not to explain the whole epic storyline of, I mean, it's completely insane. But, you know, like moon, like moon somewhere in the universe called Pandora with blue people that live on there called the Navi. And it's a story of human greed and how we view the, the world around us, the things we're given. And there's, you know, cosmic drama and cosmic conflict. None of that was enticing to me. None of that was really profound to me. But under what I loved about the movie, that underneath all of that, there was something much more profound that they were saying. Underneath the cosmic war that was going on, it was a story about a family. That's what it was. It was a story about a mom and dad trying to protect their kids. That's what the movie was about. And they weren't really shy to hide that. They, that was the, mo- the main line of the movie that stuck with me was this. This is a movie that came out in 2022, you know, in, in our modern day. The, the main line of the movie was, was, was Jake Sully said, a father protects. It's what gives him meaning. I found that super profound. That in the middle of chaos and danger, and confusion, and conflict, all that Jake Sully could focus on was, this is what I have been given, this is my family, and I'm called to protect it. And that is my primary purpose in life. I'm here to protect my family. A father protects. It's what gives him meaning. And I was reminded of 
the problems in this world that we often have that we tend to focus on everything that's going on out there. You know what I mean? You turn on the news or you flip through your Instagram and you think, man, the problems in this world are endless and we can... There's nothing wrong with being informed, but here's the problem with so much information is we can be so distracted by everything that's going in outside on outside that we miss the people we're actually supposed that we're responsible for. Is it possible that you here today know so much about what's going on with the world, but you don't know your own family? Is that possible? That you don't focus on the people that are right in front of you? I think it's very possible. In fact, I think probably many of us are guilty of that, that the problems in our world and so much focus on them can handcuff you to doing what's right, right in front of you. And this being Father's Day, what's going on in your own home? Because that's the primary place, the first place that God has called you. This is so important. It is possible to devalue what's happening at home and your place in it. That what is valuable only happens outside of the home. And some of you maybe have been tempted to think that the things that, I just do these things at home so that, you know, I can get them over with. I can get the things that I'm supposed to do over with so that I can now be released to do something greater than what's going on in my home. But my home doesn't really matter to me. What is important is what happens outside of my home. I think we can be tempted to think this way. In fact, there's a dark veneer of missionary stories that were called to something great. And we laud those missionaries and think, man, isn't it amazing that these men were, you know, traveled the world in order to preach the gospel. But there's a dark veneer in most of these missionary stories, which was they left their wife and kids to do it. And I'm not sure that was a great idea. They just said, basically, I'm gone to do something more important than you. That was many of their approaches to ministry. I'm not sure that was wise. They've often, there's unfortunate, uh, sorrowful stories of, of men who were called by God, but they disregarded their primary call at home. But God uses the language of family in Scripture. In order to illustrate how God feels about us, he uses the language of not a service team, not an employee, employer-type relationship, but a family to illustrate how he relates to his people. We are not God's employees. We're not God's acquaintances. We're not even merely friends. We're God's children. That's how God describes us. Jesus taught us to pray and address God as our Father. The home is not a side project, guys. The home's not your side project so that you can go, go and do something more important. The home is not a side tr- project. As Jared said, your worth as a leader as a shepherd, as a woman, as a man, is only as good as it is in your home. That's what it says in 1 Timothy when it's talking about elders leading the church. Man, if you can't, if you're not lovingly shepherding your own home, how can you expect to do that in any other place? 
So I'd ask you this question. As you kind of consider it's Father's Day, so this, this makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm asking you, and this is not just, this is not just for fathers. This is, this is for all of us. I mean, specifically, it is more for fathers, but for everyone. I think we can learn something and be convicted about what God, God's going to show us in Scripture. But one of the biggest questions that we consider in church or your job, man, when I was starting Restoration Church, we, had to, we took hours doing this. We took days to develop these things. And some of you have worked in jobs where you take hours, you pay thousands of dollars to develop a vision and values for what that, you know, what that job is going to be, what this church is going to be. Everyone asks, Aaron, what are the values of this church? I guess I would ask you, what are the values of your home? We never really think about that. What are the vision and values of the place, the primary place God has actually called, to, called you? What are your values at home that you live by? I think we work hard on those things in every other sphere except for the most important place, which is the home that we are in. What are the values of your home? You might feel a strong sense of purpose for everything else in your life, but totally lost and aimless at your home. And when I define home, not just your physical structure, but the closest relationships that are in your life, If you were to take a minute right now, write them out, take out a piece of paper, take out your phone, what would I say if God said to you, Jared, what are the values of your home? What is your vision for your home? That's a more important question. Some of you should start writing. What are the values of your home? Because God has a vision for his home. Psalm 68 says that. God has a vision for his home. His values that come alongside the vision for his home. Psalm 68, go to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 was written, it was channeling the experience of the people of God as they were wandering from place to place to place to place. They didn't have a home. But Psalm 68 was the, the, the psalm or the, 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 the psalm that they would sing. David is channeling the experience of the wandering people. They didn't, when they didn't have a fixed address, things that they would sing while what it's believed is David was copying things that they would sing while carrying what's called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a gold-plated chest with the two tablets of the law inside. It was a symbol of God's promise. It was a symbol of his presence. And it was a symbol of his protection over his people. Basically, when the Ark of the Covenant went before the people and they would go, and yes, you don't have a fixed address yet, but basically what God was saying was, I am your home. Wherever this goes, I am with you. Symbolically, I am your home. You don't have an address, but your address is my presence. This is what it represented. I am your home. Every time they would leave camp, look what it says in verse 1, God shall arise. It was like they would pack up their camp and God would lead them through the desert to where they would settle next. Uh, God shall arise. His enemies will be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. This was the encouragement. This was the vision as they were going from place to place to place to place. It was the people on the move. Here's where we're going. And it's amazing to be driven by such a vision from God. And we talk about that a lot, a vision from God. And even apart from God, many of the world's 
vision is don't let anything stop you from pursuing your dreams. The problem is when we merely take verse 1 and say, I'm just going to, you know, uh, uh, just get to that place as fast as I possibly can. Nothing is going to stop me. No no one is going to get in my way. The problem is, like me, in basically everywhere where I am so excited to go, I'll I'll be like, okay, here's my family, and then I'll see something I really want. I've been to Rome before, and this caused a marital spat, because I'll see something so exciting, be like, I got to get to the Colosseum. I'm like, this is, this is amazing. I'm going to go. And then I get to the Colosseum and turn around and I'm like, where's my family? I'm alone. Right. I'm like flying through. I'm like, we'll go to Disney world for the kids. And I'm the one flying ahead. And I'm like, where, where did everyone go? And this can happen when we're pursuing a vision of God is we're so driven by the vision. Then all of a sudden we get there. We're like, wait, no one actually came with me. Everyone's left in the rear view mirror. I feel like as parents, as adults, we can do that, especially with our kids. We become so focused on the dream, so focused on the goal that there's a plethora of people in the rearview mirror we've left behind while trying to get there. Are your kids left behind? You, you got what you wanted in life, but no one was there with you when you got there? I think there's a dark side to say, don't let anyone stop you from pursuing your goal. But what about the people you're called to care for? Do you have the patience to wait at least? You know, sometimes I don't. I just want to get there as quickly as possible. I can be guilty of that more than anyone. And man, when, when, we're, when we're reading Psalm 68, we think of an ancient world. I mean, the ancient world was a brutal reality. Sometimes we think that today, oh man, there's so many problems. It's never been worse than this. Ah, uh, live when David wrote. Uh, yeah, this is a brutal reality for people. When they were writing these psalms, people could not defend themselves and were simply left behind. This is what this is a cultural norm. If you couldn't defend yourself, if you couldn't provide for yourself, there was no social support. You were just left behind to die in the wilderness. That's that was what was acceptable in that world. You were, or even worse, you were taken advantage of. There was nothing to support you, to defend you. It was a world made for the strong, and the weak were left behind. That was the ancient world. But I love in the middle of the psalm, because God says, yes, I'm fo- I'm, you're going to follow me through the desert. Wherever I go, you go. But I love these passages. Here's, here's the hope for us. Look at verse 5 and 6. Because God will lead us. But it says in verse 5 and 6, here's his heart. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. See, in the middle of a brutal world where people were just left behind, God says, you know what, you know what happens in my house? God flips all of that and basically says, you know, the vision of my home will be different. If I could say, he's basically saying, well, not my house. Not in my house. This will not happen in my house. The vision of my home, God's holy habitation, as it says in verse 5, will be different than the experience of most people here in this world. My people are to be different 
than the world around them, where we get this glimpse of God thinking through his values. This is what it will be like in my home. And he says in verse 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows. The people who were most at risk in that world were widows and orphans. It was a patriarchal society. And when you were not attached to a man, a widow had lost their husband or an orphan had lost their father, you basically had no rights in that world. And that's not talking about like just one, that was the world. It was a patriarchal society. You had no rights, no one to defend you, no one to give you value. You had no standing in society. And it corrects our thinking, though, of being a protector, though, when you take the, con- the context of what God is saying here, or what the people are saying about God, that he is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. You know, sometimes we think, okay, father of, I, I looked at Avatar, I'm like, okay, it means I got to be a protector for my family. So I got to go out, I got to go out, I got to get as much camo clothing as possible. I need a front porch with a shotgun across my lap and yell at, you know, punk kids to get off my lawn because I'm protecting my property, I'm protecting my family. That's what it means to be a protector as a father, right? I don't think that's what is being communicated here. Bandana and everything. You know, I don't think that's what it it means here. When it says protector of widows, it could be translated as a judge, an advocate, a defender. The point of what it's saying, father to the fatherless and protector of widows, is that God is saying, I will give a voice to those who have no voice. I will give value to those who have no value in this world. The role of the protector will likely be most lived out, not with your muscle, maybe at some point, hopefully not, but will be most lived out with your voice. To give a voice for those who have no voice. That's what it means to be a protector. To speak up for those who are in your care. This is where authority gets turned on its head. We think authority is, I get to control those who are under you. No. I mean, that might be authority and how it looks in the world, but that's not what God talks about when he talks about authority, that I get to have say, and I get to have authority of those who are under me. Man, we've seen so many people, maybe even you, who, who especially men, have used their authority against you. In an authoritative system or even physically authoritative, we've seen men who have used their authority not as a protector, as a predator of those who are supposed to be in their care. And it's worse when it happens in your own home. Do you know one in three women will be abused from a man who is acting as a predator, not a protector? One in three. We'll be victims of that. But this is particularly what's saying here is what authority is to be used against. To advocate for, not to control. To raise the volume of the defenseless, not to, side, not to silence it. God's purposes are never at the expense of the most vulnerable. Let me say that again. God's, my purposes sometimes have been, and I have to repent of that. God's purposes are never at the expense of the most vulnerable. It was so refreshing to see this past week, not the Golden Knights win the Stanley Cup, because I couldn't stand that. Vegas Golden Knights winning the Stanley Cup, what does that even mean? 
seems like blasphemy to the Stanley Cup. Not that Florida would have been any better, but as long as the Leafs or the Bruins didn't win it, I was kind of okay with it. But to some in the room's chagrin. It was really refreshing, though. I'm not an NBA guy, but to watch the NBA Finals this past week and their best player, maybe the best player in the world right now, is Nikola Jokic. And at the end of the game, when many people are proclaiming their own greatness, do you know what Nikola Jokic said? I just want to go home. I'm tired. I just want to go home. You know what else he said afterwards in the press conference? He's like, this is just my job. I'm really good at it. He didn't say this, but in fact, he's the best, best one in the entire world at it right now. This is my job to be a basketball player, but this is not my life. In my home are things that are much more important to me than this. You know, he was raked for that. Like, he was criticized that basketball was not the greatest thing in his life. Oh my goodness, basketball is not the greatest thing. You had people, and I watch sports talk shows. I love sports, so it'd be, you know, but you had sports talk show people like, uh, you know, this should be, when you are playing in the NBA, this should be the greatest thing in your life. Everything else, even your own family, should take a backseat to your own greatness. Michael Jordan never let his family get in the way of his own greatness. He didn't have a great family life at home. I'm sure he would do things differently. But I think we need to define greatness here because, hey, I'm a sports guy too. I love basketball. But let's be honest, we're basketball players. We're not curing cancer here. So let's, let's rightly define what greatness means in this world. Let's take a step back here. To have someone, though, say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to let my own children take a backseat to my own greatness. I wonder how many people have been cast aside, run over, and I say this to myself in pursuit of what I want. In your own life, how many people have been cast aside or run over in pursuit of what you want? God says, not my house. That's not a value of my house. And therefore, in all houses where Jesus is proclaimed as Lord, those who follow God, it says in James 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows, this is a value of God's home. This is what it's like in my holy habitation. And therefore, this is what it's like in my people's homes as well. Not only does he say that in verse 6, it says God settles the solitary. I know I can't take too much time. God settles the solitary in a home. The sense of the word settled is to stay or to sit. Like this is where I stay. This is where I belong. That's the sense. He settles the solitary or the lonely in a home. One of the greatest gifts a parent can give their child is a home where they're free to make mistakes, they're free of fear in order to gain confidence in much the same way as the many Psalms that say as we take refuge in God, we are freed from shame, we're freed from fear. This is where I belong, this is where I am settled. In fact, in order for people mostly to grow and to learn 
and to find freedom. They need a place where they feel safe and secure. Ultimately, for us as children of God, this is where it's mostly applied. Like in Proverbs 14, verse 26, says the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will find a refuge. This is another value of my home. My children will be safe here with me. This is where they belong. Lastly, he says, he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Likely this referred to not just prisoners as we know prisoners who are in jail. It could mean that. Likely, though, it meant something a little bit different or at least included something a little bit different. Likely this referred, because this is really common in the ancient world, this referred to those who were so impoverished and so desperate just to get the things in life that they needed they would have to sell themselves in slavery. It's likely what it referred to, because that was very common. People were so desperate, so impoverished, they would have had to sell themselves into slavery to be someone else's prisoner in order to pay for just the normal things in life, like food and shelter. And that's unfortunately not an ancient practice. I mean, it is an ancient practice, but it still goes on today that those who are so impoverished are so desperate that they sell themselves to someone else to be their prisoner in order to get the things that they need out of desperation. IJM, which is an organization started by a Christian gentleman named Gary Hegg called International Justice Mission, they seek to set free. Do you know how many people are in slavery still today? You think slavery was a big deal back then? Or like we look at slavery and be like, that existed 300 years ago. Do you know how many people are still in slavery today? 50 million people are in slavery still today. 50 million around the world. IGM and others uh, seek to set free the 50 million people currently in labor, child, and sexual slavery. We're thankful for organizations like this, Christians who have been so filled with scriptures like Psalm 68, they were compelled to start movements that in God's home and what it means to be a follower of God is to lead out prisoners so that they would have prosperity, that they were compelled to start movements to see real change and real hope. There was a time though when this selling yourself in order to be someone's slave was just a way of life. In our culture, we think, you know, we look at that and say, wow, like it's a good thing that we look at this and say, this is what, not what God wants. This is not what God desires. But there was a time in the ancient world, but this is just the way of life. It was acceptable. So when God says this in Psalm 68, this was a cultural revolution. It was a major cultural shift when God says, not in my house, not in my people. This is, gonna, this is not going to happen. We cannot stand for the oppression and slavery to ever exist in our midst. But still today, and I've done the same thing, we shirk that responsibility. As it says in verse 6, the rebellious dwell in a parched land. When we do not follow the values of God's home, the description is like a parched land. Gary Hegg, I, I thought it was brilliant. He's the founder of International Justice. What time do we got, Brian? Oh, he doesn't. Oh, okay, we're going to end. Still today, we shirk, we shirk this, and I love his description. Gary Hegg is the founder, Christian gentleman, compelled to start IJM. He says the what, reasons we don't act or we still allow things like this to happen, people still in, people still in uh, prison that we don't act upon. 
There's three poverties of why we don't act. This is not from me. This is from Gary Hag, who started IGM, so a greater man than myself. Three poverties that look a lot like that parched land. First one is a poverty of compassion, a poverty of purpose, and a poverty of hope. Poverty of compassion, in short, is a lack of love simply for the, for the vulnerable and the oppressed. That's a poverty of compassion. We just don't love those who are oppressed or vulnerable like God does. Secondly, a poverty of purpose is the way we trifle away much of our lives, choosing the petty and irrelevant over the great purposes which we've been fashioned by our Creator. That there is a greater purpose we've been called to by God, but we often don't pursue that. Thirdly, a poverty of hope is the belief that in the end nothing can really ever be done because the problems appear, well, just too great. Because, because of these three poverties, he says, evil still persists. And I would say that it looks like, as it says in Psalm 68, akin to a parched land. The hope, though, is that when God our Father works through his people, when he says, in my house, things are going to be different. And we are compelled by that heart He works through his people. We respond wherever they go. Look what it says. Rather than a parched land, look at verse 7 to 10. There's this contrast that happens to the parched land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, you marched through the wilderness. The earth quaked. The heavens, not parched land, but what did they do? They poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai. Before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, oh God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. And in your goodness, oh God, you provided for the, for the needy or the poor. We typically hate rain. But how many of you on last Sunday night hated the rain that started falling down? I was running around it. I was like, thank you, Lord. Our, it was like the, my dirt was cement. We played soccer that weekend, and what our, the kids were falling. It was like they were scratching their knees because they were playing basically on cement. We hadn't had rain for like a month. Rain in a parched land is not, you know, it's not like, oh, man, it's raining. It's a lifeline. You have to have rain in order for life to happen. In a parched land, rain is a lifeline, and the house of God, the values of the house of God are pictured as rain wherever God goes. It waters the parched land, and things begin to change. Life begins to happen. I got to end with this, because I've read this story, not to you, I've, I've read this story before, um, and this is obviously close to me. Half, you know, half my family is uh, Filipino. IGM is a great presence in the Philippines. And I know there's littles in the room, so I'm going to spare some of the details of this. If you want to look this up, this is called Cassie's Story. You can Google Cassie's Story in IJM. Let me read you Cassie's story of how much she needed the water of God in her life for things to change. Cassie's the youngest of 12 siblings. 12. She refers to her home as the mountain. It's a remote province in the Philippines, home to indigenous people. They've got their own tribal leader and customs. She says, my life in the mountain was very hard. Her family moved them to a city when Cassie was about 10 years old so she could go to school. It was the first time she ever saw something like money. There'd been no currency, no electricity, no technology, no way to vote or participate in society back on the mountain. Life was still hard, though. 
She didn't have a uniform, didn't have notebook, pencil, don't have shoes like everyone else in the school because she's from the mountain. The family used to grow all their food, but now they needed money to pay for it. They were poor. Cassie helped her mother work as a maid for another family. It was there she met AJ, which if you know Filipinos, it's a very common Filipino name, AJ. I think I know like five Filipinos named AJ at every family reunion. Um, It was there she met an AJ, the man who would make her wish for death over life. At first, AJ seemed like a godsend from the capital city of Manila, a place none of them had ever been. He was a relative of their employer and a godson of their neighbor. He told Cassie's parents that he could give her a better future. He promised to send her to school and treat her as an adoptive daughter. Cassie's dream of traveling to places she'd only glimpsed in pages of old books was coming true. Many Filipinos, and maybe you could, the Filipinos in the room can affirm this, many P- Filipinos speak of the Manila dream. Manila is home to about a quarter of the whole country's population. It's the trade center for hu- and hub of education, business, and culture. Cassie explains, they say when you visit Manila, your life, your life will change. Unfortunately for her, it changed for much worse. I remember my first time in Manila, she says. It was happy. There's lots of buildings. People were free, Cassie says. And AJ started to take care of her. Wear nice clothes, nice shoes, complete uniform in school, ball pen, a notebook, and a bag. Problem was AJ, and I'll spare details, AJ was running a cyber trafficking operation out of his home. And Cassie was not the only victim. He preyed on the children of family friends and vulnerable teenage neighbors to create a fake family. He appeared to neighbors as a benevolent father figure, sending the children to good schools, posting photos of pool parties and vacations on Facebook. Cassie went on to explain, when we're in the house of my recruiter, we can't talk to anybody because we're very scared. It's like no one can believe us because everyone thinks that I'm the daughter of this recruiter and my recruiter is very kind. She said there were six victims inside that home as young as 11 months old. A little baby girl. He would introduce that baby girl to everyone in their neighborhood as his daughter. But when that baby grew up, it's like everything will change. He uses her to have money, just like us. Cassie could only dream of escape. She dreamt of traveling to other countries far away. She dared not tell anyone at school or try to communicate back home what was happening because she was terrified. What hope does someone like Cassie have unless compelled by the heart of God? Cassie was not alone as she felt. People were looking for her. She came home from school on a Friday with the same pit that always dropped in her stomach on the weekends. That night she woke up to loud noises and police inside the three-story house where she had suffered for nearly five years. She said she was scared. She was crying, Cassie recalled, but an IJM social worker was there that night. She explained that Cassie and the children were not in trouble. They were, in fact, being rescued. Agents from the Philippine Criminal Investigation and Detection Group, alongside his U.S. Homeland Security and Government Social Services Agency and IJM staff, planned back-to-back operations, finally to arrest this A.J., With AJ in custody, the rescue team moved to the home where 16-year-old Cassie and two young children were asleep. IJM rescued me and transferred me in my second home, she says with a smile, eager to talk about her second home, the beautiful aftercare shelter where she now lives. She calls the other girls her second sisters, and together they love dancing to YouTube choreographers, like my children do, and playing basketball every morning before classes begin. 
IJM social workers and staff at the home are helping Cassie process the pain and betrayal she carried so long in secret. At first, Cassie blamed herself. It's hard to pen how strong and courageous Cassie has been given the intensity of circumstances she went through. But Cassie overcame the most difficult enemy she faced, which was herself, when she decided to stop blaming herself for everything that has happened. She said this, and I'll end with this. What gives me hope is first God in my life. She, he is the father that I've, not, that I've never had. The father to protect and care for and take care of me always. He is my strength. This is God our Father. A father protects. It's what gives him meaning. We derive that meaning from the heart of God our Father who calls you back into his family today. These are the values of God's home. Embrace him as father and reflect those same values in your home. God, thank you for this day you've given to us today. Thank you for Father's Day that we can reflect on what your home is like. And we can be compelled with that same heart to apply that to our own homes and the homes of our community. May it be said of us as we carry on that same heart, the father of the fatherless, protector of widows, leads the solitary in a home, leads prisoners to prosperity. Lord, may we see by the power of your spirit working through your people, abundant rain wherever your people go because you are with us. You are with us. In a parched land, may this family and all of the homes represented in this family, may we bring rain. God, we pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.